Please take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the Gospel of Matthew and chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, returning to our series of messages in this book. And this morning, as I reflected on our unusual circumstances that we continue to face, I thought of Paul's testimony in 2 Timothy chapter 2, that though he was in bonds, the word of God was not bound. Uh, he was in chains, but, but the word wasn't and, and couldn't be chained. He was imprisoned, but the word wasn't imprisoned. And we, of course, aren't in chains, uh, but neither are we able to gather together in one body. Um, but in spite of our physical limitations this morning, there's no boundary on the work that God can accomplish in our lives through his word. And, and I trust that wherever you are this morning, as we gather together around the word, that your heart cry would be that God would do a thorough, that he would, he would do an unlimited, unboundaried work in your life this morning through his word. May the word run and have free course in our hearts this morning, and that certainly is, is my prayer, and I'm certain that that's yours as well. As we turn to Matthew chapter 5, we are coming this morning to the last of the Beatitudes found in our Lord's Sermon on the Mount, and this Beatitude is unique in that while all others are recorded in one verse, this one occupies three verses. So I want us to begin in verse 10, and we are going to read down through verse 12, as we begin this morning, Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, you can follow along as I read. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. For great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Several years ago, uh, multiple news outlets carried the story of a speaker at the National High School Journalism Conference. And this speaker going on a vigorous attack against Christianity. Dan Savage was the speaker. He was supposed to be delivering a speech about anti-bullying. Mr. Savage is uh, the founder of an anti-bullying campaign that has reached uh, at that time more than 40 million viewers with contributors that range from President Obama to Hollywood stars. Uh, Mr. Savage and his male partner were guests at the White House for President Obama's Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender Pride Month. And he was a contributor, again, to a White House anti-bullying conference. But when he spoke to hundreds of high school students, including a number from Christian schools, his speech was described by one adult sponsor as, I'm quoting, a pointed attack on Christian beliefs. Because that speech was laced with vulgarities and off-color remarks, there really is little that I can relate. But I do think it's appropriate to and fitting to the message this morning uh, for me to give you some flavor of that speech. 
He said, and I'm quoting Dan Savage, we can learn to ignore the blank in the Bible about gay people. The same way we've learned to ignore the blank in the Bible about shellfish, about slavery, about dinner, about farming. And he went on into other topics. He told those young students, we ignore blank in the Bible about all sorts of things. And then he said that for a number of years now, uh, for a number of years, he was not allowed in schools, but now his organization has, has gained national acceptance, and, and one uh, responder said he's reveling in the fact that it's basically a middle finger to all those teachers and administrators who wouldn't let him have access to the students before. At some point, about 100 students were offended to the extent that they left the room and and savage ended up heckling the students and called them again a name not appropriate for me to repeat and he eventually said you can tell the bible guys in the hall they can come back now because i'm done beating up the bible and as he did other students hollered approvingly and cheered that statement Uh, can you imagine the outcry that they're would have been and it would have been instantaneous if any christian speaker had reflected even a very small percentage of the type of attack savage launched the national scholastic press association sponsored that event in connection with the journalism education association and in a post-conference statement in response to complaints they they said it is never uh, the intent to let our students get hurt during Uh, their time at our conventions and they wish that their speaker had stayed more on target for our audience of teen journalists but instead of issuing any kind of apology they just simply said that i'm quoting this was a teachable moment for himself savage did offer what was a, a completely sarcastic apology if i hurt anyone's feelings and then he added but i have a right to defend myself and to point out the hypocrisy of people who justify anti-gay bigotry by pointing to the Bible and insisting by, uh, that we must live by the code of Leviticus on this issue and on no other. And I'm, I'm just referencing this one illustration uh, this morning, this incident as an illustration of, of what is a public and increasingly prevailing animosity towards Christianity in our country. The climate in in our country has changed, and it has done so within our lifetimes, and and it has been at an accelerated pace over the past several years. You can risk your job for certain statements about abortion, certainly over homosexuality, possibly even over Islam and the Koran and so on. But men can make the most outrageous comments towards biblical christianity and and there simply is no outrage at all but our text this morning declares that there has always been antagonism and these words from our lord are really shockingly straightforward and these are words are far from the the only time the lord ever spoke of of this reality we'll eventually get there but in matthew chapter 10 one of the places where he was commissioning the disciples to go out he spoke of them as sheep in the midst of wolves he spoke in another occasion of men handing them over to courts 
He said, brother is going to betray brother and a father his child and shall cause them to be put to death. On the eve of his crucifixion, there in the upper room, he said, if they persecuted me, they will kill you thinking that they are offering service to God. So this is not new. And as we turn our attention to the particular statement of our text, I do want to make a couple of observations about the broader context. The first observation is just a matter of the structure of the Beatitudes. Um, The first four deal with our relationship to God, and the second four deal with our relationship to other people, how, how our true relationship with God is displayed in relationship to others. Then with this last of the Beatitudes, the focus is not on the blessed person's stance uh, with God or activities towards others, but it really is about the response of, of others to this person who is blessed, who is favored by God. The second observation about the context that is really critical for our not missing an important aspect of the message is that our Lord's prediction about open persecution comes in the context of a sermon in which we noted our Lord was evangelizing. We've, again, on multiple occasions now looked at the evidences of an evangelistic thrust towards the end of this sermon. But if you look right here at the promise in verse 10, again, we read it, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. But now look at this. For theirs is the what? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, the the Lord was calling on his hearers throughout this sermon to submit to his authority to be so transformed in the inner man that they are rightful citizens of his heavenly kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And as he evangelizes in this way, he tells his audience that, that contrary maybe to what our expectations would be, that people are persecuted for the very reason that they have become a loyal subject and a follower of God. As sometimes in our mindsets we think that if I get right with God and accept His Son as my Savior, <laughs> that, that everybody will be happy with me. The fact is that for the very reason of becoming a loyal subject and follower of the Lord, people are persecuting. Now, there are people who suffer for other reasons. And, and the Apostle Peter exhorted his, his readers in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 15 to let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer, as a busybody, uh, basically a meddler in other men's matters. So Peter was saying, brethren, don't bring negative attention on yourself because you are always out there looking for something to oppose and giving your opinion about it. 
Don't suffer because you really are fanatical in pushing a political agenda in the name of God. Don't suffer because you, you just are offensive by your lack of personal discipline in some respect or another. There are reasons not to suffer. And I do fear that there are Christians that do unnecessary damage just because they can't control their tongue or they don't do good on the job. They're late. They cut corners. They don't give attention to detail. And, and, and then they claim that the negative reaction is, is some kind of Christian suffering. Okay, well, that kind of suffering is not unique to people. Blast of God. But it is true that those rightly related to God will receive persecution simply and merely for the fact that they are a follower of the Lord. And there are two specific statements that that point to the rub of, of kingdom citizens with those that bring the persecution this morning we're going to give attention to one and, Lord willing, um, uh, the, to the second one next time. Let me just go ahead and, and show you the second one. The, the second particular rub is found in verse number 11, where he says in, in the last phrase, Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely. And here's, here's the second source of the, of the rub, that is, for my sake. For the sake of the cause of Christ and his gospel. But the first particular um, reference point, and the one that I want us to turn our attention to now, is found in verse number 10. And again, you can see it uh, stated very clearly. Blessed are they which are persecuted, in this case, for what? For the sake of righteousness. Uh, Brethren, I want to remind us that it has been this way from the very beginning of time. All the way back in the early chapters of Genesis, Genesis chapter 4, Cain killed Abel. And the Bible's witness was that he did it because his deeds were evil and his brothers were our exact expression. His brothers were righteous. They were right with God. Now, we don't have to go far in this sermon, that is the Sermon on the Mount, to understand what righteousness is in the context. It is, it's the very character spoken of here in the sermon. I mean, back in verse number 3, it is, it is knowing and confessing spiritual poverty. In verse number 4, it is mourning or grieving over sin. In verse number 5, it is being meek before God. In verse number 6, it is seeking to be right with God as a first-rate priority, and so on. And there is a sub-theme, actually, in the rest of this sermon that really revolves around this matter of righteousness. If, if you just come down to verse number 17, you can see that some people thought the Lord was setting aside the Old Testament law. Think not, he says, that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. 
Then the Lord had to correct that error. And in verse 20, if you just dip down uh, there, uh, the, the Lord says that there was a righteousness. Notice for I say to you that except your righteousness, there was a righteousness that had to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And without that, you in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees, whom he said your righteousness would have to exceed. The Pharisees had a righteousness, and uh, according to chapter 6, that was about drawing attention to themselves through their outward religiosity. You, you might remember, even from just some familiarity with, with chapter 6, that they prayed to be seen of men, and they fasted to be seen of men, and they gave their financial offerings to be seen of men. And quite honestly, that kind of activity can actually bring abuse upon ourselves that is not honoring to the Lord's name. When people just see us doing whatever we're doing, grandstanding, uh, so to speak, and, and to just draw attention to ourselves through our religious activity. But the Lord, again, in chapter 5 and verse 20, speaks of a righteousness that exceeds that. And he goes right into six illustrations of the kind of righteousness that he's talking about. You can see in verse number 21 that what he's talking about isn't a matter of, of refraining simply from actual murder. But going into verse number 22, it deals with passions of the heart and the words uttered towards others. Beginning in verse number 27, it doesn't just refrain from technical adultery, but it involves purity in the heart and what is looked at and, and what is not looked at and what is not touched. And even in the refusal to pursue divorce, all in that same context. It reserves all romantic intimacy to one man with one woman within the committed bounds of marriage. Beginning in verse 33, it involves no false vows and misleading anyone about any intentions or activities. And, and we won't continue down through uh, the end of the chapter in the last three, but you get the idea that the Lord is talking about a powerful transformation on the inside. Yes, it will be eventually seen, but it is not just about outward religiosity. The true citizens of Christ's kingdom have been changed by the power of God, and now these people are out there in a world that operates largely on a, a completely different value system. And, and we are to be in it, Jesus said, but not of it. We're, we're to be out there as a witness to those that are in the world, and, and by the grace of God, used to spare some out of it. But Jesus said, while you're in it, changed through his work of grace, through the gospel, he said, if you were of the world, the world would love you. But because you are not of the world, the world will hate you. And he specifically prayed in the same context to the Father not to take us out of the world, 
but stay there operating in this world with, with an outlook on life that is different and values that are different. And, and we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And he says that while that is happening, there will be a significant rub at a minimum. And again, we, we aren't the first people to face this reality. In fact, I think it is safe to say that other believers have faced these dynamics to a far greater intensity. Christians back in the first century world had it much more difficult than we have it today. Any and, and nearly every function would have been open with some kind of dedication to the gods. And many of them were held in pagan temples. Tertullian wrote in 2.20, he said, We have the reputation of being aloof from the crowds. They didn't attend the theaters and the stage shows and a number of the athletic events. And in many cases, they declined the best food. And they did it for righteousness' sake. In John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress... Bunyan sees in his dream two pilgrims, one by the name of Christian and the other name by the name of Faithful, and they are approaching a town called Vanity, which kept a fair called Vanity Fair. It's kept there all year long. It bears the name Vanity Fair, as Bunyan writes, because the town where it is kept is lighter than vanity, also because all that is there sold or that cometh hither is vanity. The fair is no new erected business, but a thing of ancient standing. Almost 5,000 years ago, there were other pilgrims walking to the celestial city, and Beelzebub, Apollyon, and Legion with their companions, perceiving by the way, uh, by the path that the pilgrims made, that their way to the city lay through this town of vanity. They contrived here to set up a fair where would be sold all sorts of vanity, that it should last a year long. These two pilgrims, Christian and faithful, caused quite a stir when they entered the town because their raiment was diverse from the raiment of any that trade in the fair. Their speech was diverse from those of the fair. They, they insulted the business of the fair because they would not buy their merchandise. Eventually, they would be put on trial, asked where they were from. Christian and faithful indicated that they were pilgrims and strangers in the world and that they were going to their own country, which was the heavenly Jerusalem. Because these pilgrims were deemed to be disturbers of the peace, they were convicted of being guilty, beaten, tied down with chains, and eventually faithful was martyred. So this is not new, brethren. The reality is that without this kind of dynamic in the, again, the context of the Lord's message, there's actually room for questioning the authenticity of our salvation. Whoever will be a friend of the world is what, James wrote? Whoever will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And again, this is where we started the, the preaching of the Lord. The, the Lord wants would-be professors to, and, and followers to count the cost. I am getting just a little ahead of us, but go to Matthew chapter 13. 
And I know this is familiar territory to us, the opening kingdom parable in a chapter of parables is the one about the sower. You can see in verse number 3 of Matthew 13 that uh, a sower went forth to sow. And you know some of the places where the seed fell, the wayside in verse 4, stony places in verse 5. Um, some fell among thorns in verse number 7. Other fell on the good ground. And there's some other descriptions of that. But in verse number 19, the Lord started to give... Uh, an interpretation to the disciples of what he's talking about there and in verse number 19 the seed is the word of the kingdom and he talks about it again falling on on uh, the uh, on the wayside and the, the birds that come and snatch it away are like the devil and he catches it before it ever penetrates the heart but notice verse 20 he that received the seed in the stony places and if you go back to uh, verse number five, when, when the seed uh, fell into that type of earth, it right away, verse five, it, it sprung up. But in verse six, when the sun was up, it ended up being scorched and it didn't have any root. And so it, it withered away. And the idea there is that there was some immediate like, kind of topsoil that was good but below was just a, a rocky ledge. And so when the sun came up, that, that dirt heated up quickly because the sun is down on the rock. And again, there's no root. And so almost as quickly as it, as it uh, grew up, it, it weathered away. And now as the Lord's giving the interpretation, uh, verse number 20, the same as he that heareth the word, and anon is the idea, and immediately, right away, with joy, he receiveth it. Somebody hears a gospel presentation, and he gets excited, and hey, I'll take it, sign me up. But now look at verse 21. Yet hath he no root in himself, but dureth only endures for a short time, a while. But now notice this. When tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the what? Because of the word. By and by, in time, he is, and we have our word, offended. It's like he's scandalized. I mean, with joy, he says, sure, I'll take heaven. Then he understands what the Bible has to say about uh, the life of a disciple. And he, as he starts to obey the scripture, persecution comes. And it's like, nobody told me this was coming. He's, he's like scandalized. And again, he turns away, he withers away, and there's no lasting fruit. <clears throat> Brethren, I, I wish I didn't need... Um, to say this, but don't be surprised if a great deal of the persecution that comes from a life of obedience to the word uh, doesn't come from other professing Christians. Nominal Christianity has often been a source of great opposition to those 
that are seeking a genuine Christian experience. I mean, we know that in the life of Christ, the Pharisees were some of the most vicious opposition to Christ and his followers because as they pursued real righteousness, it crossed the Pharisees' controlling, tradition-based external righteousness. Again, historically speaking, the Roman Catholic Church and, his inqui- and its inquisitions will probably go down in history as perhaps the greatest source of opposition of true Christianity. But I mean, it gets closer to home. Amy Carmichael is a name that many of you may be aware of from more recent missions history. She was born December 6, uh, 1867, North Ireland coast, and she spent the last 53 years of her life as a single missionary in India, used of the Lord to rescue thousands of girls from bondage to moral filth and idolatry and, and impacted their lives uh, for Christ. But before the Lord planted her firmly in India. She ministered in Japan, China, Ceylon. But as well as she was ministering in Japan, that she was actually shocked to find her conviction that new converts should burn their idols actually opposed by older Christians, older missionaries. Uh, these others felt like if word got out, that Christians would have to burn their idols, it would turn all other inquirers away. Those older missionaries actually started praying for Amy that the Lord would open her eyes and show her the foolishness of transgressing Japanese custom. They urged her not to mention idols again, but the truth was dearer than success, and she wrote in her journal, I could not buy a soul at the cost of sacrificing truth. The fact that many might and probably would be turned back is no proof that this course was wrong. John six sixty six. we read that from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. The servant is not greater than his Lord. And her point was that if some who physically followed Christ during his earthly ministry, turned back when he proclaimed the truth. It shouldn't be thought strange that some superficial believers would be turned back when we proclaim the truth today. And so I, I want to ask you this morning, in keeping with our Lord's message here in the Sermon on the Mount, as well as multiple other places, have you counted the cost? Are you prepared to be a loyal follower of Christ and true righteousness even at the expense of being ostracized and isolated and maybe some more significant form of attack? No one is saved from their sin and made right with God through enduring opposition. You are saved from your sin through the confessing of it and mourning over its offensiveness and meekly admitting that you can't do a thing to earn your standing with God and you look outside of yourself to trust in the righteous life and death of Jesus who bore your sin and your shame and all that goes with it on the cross of Christ, the cross of Calvary. But you put all your dependence on what he did and you claim him and his work. 
And as you do it, you rejoice in the provision of the cross. And, and one mark that you have done so will be your bearing whatever reproach comes with that cross. And when there is a cost to being a loyal follower of King Jesus and a true citizen of His kingdom, remember... And by faith, embrace these words of Jesus that you are truly blessed. You are uniquely favored by God. Blessed are those which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Would you bow your heads and, and close your eyes? I want to give just a minute again for us to consider, have we, have we counted the cost? Are we prepared to be loyal followers of the king and, and a true citizen of his kingdom and, and seek first his kingdom and righteousness At the cost of reproach. Maybe I have been. And maybe in many ways, by the grace of God, that, that life has been lived out. And yet, even as I'm hearing this kind of theme this morning, the Lord is, is, is burdening my heart, burdening your heart. But in some ways, I've kind of deflected away from following the word, as Jesus said, because it's brought me into some kind of, of reproach and shame and tribulation. It may be that there are some others, and, and the only real profession you've had is, oh, sure, I'll pray that and take heaven. And today you really need to embrace the life, the death, <clears throat> the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and even the shame and the reproach of his death on the cross for you. I'll put all my dependence on what he did and what he finished, and I'll take him for all that he is. Father, we thank you that Jesus endured the cross and he bore the shame for our salvation. And he did so even with joy, for the joy that it was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And our hearts want to respond this morning, even like the Apostle Paul, when he said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross, in nothing but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Lord, we pray that it would truly be so in our lives by the power of your Spirit and for your glory. Amen. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling 
and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. God bless you.